This is Nikki Toyama Sito, the Executive Director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for this episode of 20 Minute Takes. This week, we speak with Nishan Demel. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Verite Research, an organization that studies the society in Sri Lanka. And he shares with us some reflections of how, as Christians, we can engage with a post truth society and what it means to build trust and credibility in the public space. Nishan Demel, thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Takes. Glad to be here, Nikki. Well, you know, I, as I was preparing for this interview, you and I, we go back uh, quite some some years. And as I was preparing for this interview, I looked at your CV and I saw a line that uh, was uh, something that I hadn't uh, recognized. So I wonder if by way of introduction, you might be able to tell us a bit about uh, what is this uh, Frogs in Harmony that you were a part of in college? Uh, well, Nikki, one of the, uh, one of the exceptional... Um, inabilities that I have, uh, and it turns out to be that I'm not very good at singing, uh, even oh. though I enjoy doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my college rooming group was split into two. There were three people who were exceptionally good singers and ran an a cappella group at Harvard, uh, uh-huh. and three of us others who couldn't sing at all. So our group, they were called Under Construction and they performed for the public. Our group was called Frogs in Harmony and we performed in our room late at night, free from, you know, uh, attacks by the, any audiences that would like to stop <laughs> hearing us. <laughs> well, we look forward to hearing the album come out soon for Frogs in Harmony. Um, but thank you so much for uh, for joining us. I know one of the things um, that you do as uh, at Verite Research is that you all um, understand and, and do research on the situation in Sri Lanka. And as we've talked over the years, one of the things I found so interesting and fascinating is um, uh, here in the U.S. context, we are having a changing relationship with the media, with journalism. And I think uh, there's just a lot of skepticism about the sources of information. But it sounds like this is something that you all have had to wrestle with for quite some time in Sri Lanka. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what it means to to live in that sort of an environment and any advice that you might have? Uh, Nikki, I often get asked this question from uh, people visiting Sri Lanka as well. And it's a question that gets raised in the context also of social media. Uh, and a generational concern people often ask, you know, how are you navigating the post-truth society, so to speak? Mm. Yes. Now, I think it's quite unfortunate that the Oxford Dictionary decided to coin the term uh, post-truth society uh, or post-truth uh, as a word, because I myself, I don't know about you, have not really come across anyone who says they are unconcerned uh, for truth or about mm. what the truth is. Mm-hmm. The, I think the definition, uh, it tries to capture the idea that people have stopped caring about what the truth is in objective mm-hmm. terms uh, and want to embrace truth in their subjective sense um, and are unconcerned for truth in the, in the sense of it being uh, true. Now, 
I, I have a slightly different diagnosis uh, with regard to what the problem is. Uh, and I think uh, setting up Sri Lanka as a contrast really helps you understand that. Uh, in the United States, um, let's say the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, the UK, the BBC, mm -hmm. uh, there have been institutions uh, enormously important and influential uh, that have been led uh, with integrity um, and built trust. Uh, and as a result, when one of these organizations said something, uh, people mm -hmm. tended to believe them. Yes. Okay. Uh, and despite the the movement to say that uh, the way creating competition in the media and allowing anyone to say whatever they liked, now that predates social media. Uh, you've had hundreds of news organizations, newspapers, magazines published, and many of them say outrageously crazy things. Aliens have landed in, you know. Just, uh, <laughs> I think I bought newspaper. that newspaper once. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the whole, you know, even TV series like X-Files and all that, you know, feed a certain audience uh, that uh, in which, you know, this is entertaining and interesting, but people don't uh -huh. necessarily believe it is true. Uh -huh. uh, because there are there are media stations or organizations that anchored for you what truth is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the other sorts of stuff uh, that you knew was interesting or funny or you know uh, but not not quite true. Uh, I think what has happened uh, over the last um, twenty five years or maybe even shorter last last fifteen years, especially is that there has been an erosion of trust in the historically accepted, trusted anchors of ah, uh, yes. arbiters yes. of truth. And as trust has eroded, we now don't longer know who to believe, um, which translates to a, a real crisis in what we believe. Because you are, of course, when you don't have anchors of trust, anchors of, uh, of objectivity, you tend to then get caught up in those sources that are telling you things that are easier for you to believe or mm, more tuned yes. to your own biases or views. So I think we don't live in a post-truth world, but we are increasingly living in a post-trust world. And the reality of being in a post-trust environment or society can begin from outside to look like it is post-truth, even though that is not what's going on. Uh, people's desire and hunger for truth, if at all, is higher, uh, but their ability to know and believe the manipulations of media, propaganda, I mean, from the Iraq war, even when the world was convinced that there were weapons of mass destruction by the most apparently trusted sources of news, whether it is New York Times or BBC, uh, has, I think, speeded up uh, this loss of trust, loss of confidence, uh, that then is having repercussions uh, for how we anchor or arbiter uh, true belief in our societies. Now, Sri Lanka, you asked me about, uh, I think that problem has been there in Sri Lanka for a long time. Uh, in a way. So uh, while the United States and uh, those countries in which there were these strong anchors of trust are coming into it um, uh, as if it's a new problem, uh, what I often say is in Sri Lanka, we are in some ways accustomed to this problem. Mm -hmm. right? People have always learned to 
read and evaluate what they get in mainstream media with some level of cynicism or doubt or their practice is more inbuilt. So we can go into more details of what that means later, but I just want you to set up this contrast uh, between post-truth and post-trust, which I think are very different dynamics, which uh, though can look in terms of consequences quite similar. Wow. I mean, I feel like as you're talking, I feel like I'm looking into the future because uh, I think a lot of what you're describing has really resonated, not just with people's uh, trust relationship with their news sources, but also with institutions. Um, you mentioned that there's a couple of practices that folks within Sri Lanka sort of have as they approach their news sources with some skepticism or some analysis. Can you, can you give us a little bit of uh, what are some of those concretes or some of those common practices? I think more than practices, it is that government um, has always had a huge uh, influence in trying to use what we call propaganda, right? So that yes. the propaganda, uh-huh. uh, the capture of propaganda of mainstream news has been quite prevalent. So most mm-hmm. of the main television channels, the newspapers have been government owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a result, when people listen to the news and read newspapers, they understand that is what the government view is. And people diversify their sources. Mm -hmm. So they do try Mm -hmm. to, I think, capture news and information from different places um, and be a little more circumspect about what they believe. Ah, yes. Okay. And I think triangulate. And that practice of being triangulating, exactly, um, and of trying to compare different sources and different views uh, has got inbuilt over time a little bit more. Mm. I must tell you that that's not a perfect uh, human response. There is no no really good way to overcome Mm -hmm. the tendency for human bias to believe what you read. Yes, yeah. I'll give you a great example on this uh, that we were discussing in a in a Harvard classroom with uh, with two philosophy professors who were teaching a, a class on objectivity. And um, so it was a class on trying to get to the fundamentals of reality and truth uh, and the question of objectivity. Um, one of the things, so we had uh, a professor, Robert Nozak, who's passed away since. He was one of the famous philosophers and Amartya Sen, a Nobel Prize winning economist, yes. uh, teaching this class. Uh, and they were reflecting uh, on their own problem because they said, uh, you know, we've never done a newspaper interview in which when it got written up, uh, we didn't find significant errors. I mean, this was not uh, even propaganda, but the yes. journalists uh-huh. often made very significant errors in how they reported uh, even an interview. Right? Yes. I'm, I'm glad uh-huh. uh, uh, this is being recorded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to keep me honest. <laughs> <laughs> the risk of the problem is, of course, lower <laughs> when it's recorded and played back. So, uh, and they said, you know, we, we took it for granted that newspaper reporting is full of errors. We didn't even try to very hard to correct them. It was inevitable. We, it's, yes. It never happens that they get it all right. Mm-hmm. But Nozick said, you know, this came to me, uh, but, the, but they said when we read interviews of other people, mm-hmm. uh, we tend to think that everything is correct. Uh, that's true. <laughs> right? uh-huh. Uh-huh. So in my own interview to the newspaper, I know that they are making mistakes, but then they've interviewed somebody else and I'm reading it and I believe it. 
Uh-huh, yes. Entirely, that's the, the t- tendency we have to believe the printed word and the written word. And Nozick said, you know, one journalist, you know, talked to me about my personal circumstances and reprinted something about my mother and her birthday, and her birthday was wrong. Uh-huh. But I got a call from my father in Russia who said, son, I'm so disappointed in you that you don't even remember your mother's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> So because his, certainly the journalist didn't get it wrong. His dad, <laughs> dad thought it was more probable that he couldn't remember his mother's birthday <laughs> than the journalist made a mistake. So I think that vulnerability we have uh, as yes. humans to the printed word, to treat it as objective, uh, and to the media to treat it as objective is real. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, and this is, of course, why political power is the first thing they focus on is control of media or influence mm. of media, why so much, um, uh, you know, funds are dedicated to managing the message and, and what. And historically, you know, in, in, in the Soviet Union, in, people were more open about what they did. They called it propaganda. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the yes. le- old left political parties, yes. they still have a position called propaganda secretary. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've learned to cloak that quite well today. We never say propaganda secretary, we'll say head of communications, right? That's right. Uh, in a political <laughs> party. But uh, even in Sri Lanka today, you still have that, that position in the old left political parties. I think uh, they understood very well they were doing propaganda. Ah. Uh, and the manipulation of art and media uh, to condition the way people thought and saw, I think is, uh, it predates uh, modern media. Predates mm. social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, take Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. He had a famously problematic relationship with his mother, who never approved uh, of what he did and and his ascent to power. Uh, but he commissioned artists to paint pictures uh, of himself being coronated with his mother mm. in the fort- in in the picture, <laughs> uh, yes. and distributed these and put them in, in museums. Uh, and this this was the way propaganda worked, right? Uh, it was completely a false understanding of uh, of his legitimacy. I mean, the family legitimacy was important, uh, but uh, you, you know, while the mechanisms used to do this, I think, have of course changed quite a lot. But the human ability, I think, to be aware of how they are being manipulated is still mm. quite, uh, is, not, is not developed enough, I think, which is why yes. people find it productive to invest funds in these kinds of things. Uh, they still find it works in some way. I mean, I think, wow. I, I suppose yeah. adver- advertising does the same thing in a way, right? Yes. I, that does give me some level of hope that it's, it's not this technology, but it's a little bit of our relationship with information. That's right. And and narrative, it sounds like. And, and maybe we should be, I mean, one of the things I always think is we should take problems people have, the human vulnerabilities, and make uh, programs for education, even in our schools, to help mm. people mm-hmm. actually navigate those vulnerabilities better. We do that in some areas. We teach people how to manage money, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to plan uh, for, say, their savings. I mean, in, in those departments, we teach people. We may be doing a little bit better than we did in the past in teaching people to have uh, negotiate relationships better, yeah, uh, to handle yeah. conflict better. But we need classes to teach people how to read the news. Yes. Or how, yeah. to, how to interpret the news that they see. Uh, 
we we don't teach that we people yeah. to leave to people to their own devices uh in that department and i think we we should recognize human vulnerabilities in different spheres and use education as a tool i mean what if you you know what do young people children learn by watching uh advertising you know you might say they learn what products are good or bad or they learn that adults tell lies for money <laughs> <laughs> you have famous sports stars and others coming and endorsing products they cannot possibly believe in uh, and influencing minds so uh, that that phrase is not mine i think uh, i read it in a book uh, somewhere but in reflections on media i think uh, we do uh, education can do a lot in in supporting people to overcome an age old vulnerability which which lot of money is spent exploiting yeah no absolutely i appreciate that you put that in the frame of vulnerability because i think that that you know that is um in a sense there's an invitation there for folks who have kind of a justice posture to things you mentioned um uh, shifting from thinking about it as a post truth to a post trust and I think we've been talking a, a bit about information and media, but I think in the United States, we're, in the North America, we're seeing an erosion of trust of institutions. And some of our listeners are pastors who participate in some of these institutions of society. For folks who are both part of um, part of the, the the systems that are losing some level of societal trust. And for those of us who are just participating in society, what what advice do you have uh, as Christians um, about how we might need to shift how we operate, or uh, some some insights in, in in that space of from the Sri Lankan context? Yeah. So I think building alternative avenues or <clears throat> institutions or locations of trust mm-hmm. and integrity is the challenge of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you are able to do that, I think uh, your influence in a positive way in the world can expand exponentially. But it does require the ability and the willingness to be self-critical, to admit when you're right and not be selective about what you say to simply mm-hmm. support your cause. Now, take Christian apologetics, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we would like to always bring up the arguments that support our view and support our, our claim for who God is and you know how you, uh, how you come to those conclusions. But we ourselves, in, in our own faith, I think, uh, grapple with lots of questions and doubts and you know, ways of trying to make sense of it, and the Bible does too. Mm-hmm. I think being able to be honest about these difficulties uh, is a good way of being building trust. Ah, interesting. Yes, you know the, the temptation I think in today's world is to win the argument. That's right. Yeah, uh, to selectively choose to tell people the things that help your argument and selectively neglect the things that don't help your argument. Mm-hmm. But that is then not a good way to build trust. I think. Right, so we must be and to be neutral and to be open as much as possible. I don't think we can wipe ourselves clean of our biases. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no instrument uh, or, or or technology to do that. Uh, but people must see ourselves as trying as much as we can, 
to be open and and say things in the way they are uh, without it being self-serving. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at christiansforsocialaction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends.